to the sixth chapter. Many of you have been very kind the last couple of weeks telling me how much you have enjoyed the Word. I have generally replied that if you can't preach this, you might as well get out of the business. You have no business being in the pulpit if you cannot preach the words of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19. We'll read down through verse 34. We are following the life of Christ chronologically through the New Testament. And we are at this particular juncture in the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. We read back in Matthew 4 that he went throughout all Galilee, through their cities, teaching and preaching in their synagogues, preaching and teaching this thing called the gospel of the kingdom. As I have shared with you earlier, I believe what we call the Sermon on the Mount is simply a sampling of this gospel. This is what Jesus was teaching and preaching probably in many places throughout the area of Galilee. For instance, Luke's gospel records this being preached in a plain. Jesus coming down from a mountain, standing in a plain and preaching it. Matthew's gospel records it as him going up into a mountain. That's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. But in actuality, as you can see, it's basically the same sermon. And I believe that's sort of an indication that this was not a unique sermon, but this is, as it were, the... New Testament witness to this thing we call the gospel of the kingdom. We have the king himself proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The king himself tells us who will be in that kingdom, what they look like, how they act in what we call the Beatitudes. And now the king himself is, as it were, laying down the rules of his kingdom. I mean, it's his kingdom. So he's the one who tells you how you are to live in this kingdom. And we break in here in Matthew, the sixth chapter, beginning in verse 19. Where our Lord says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The candle of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be whole, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his statue? Man, I would if I could. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take Thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day, is its own evil. As mentioned earlier, our Lord here is basically laying down the law, the rule that is to govern those in his kingdom. Back in chapter 5, he dealt with the rule as it dealt with our fellow man, sort of as we would say on the horizontal level. 
We saw that there is a behavior that we are to exhibit towards those fellow human beings on this earth and that our behavior is to exhibit itself in more than just doing right, in right actions, that is. It's not enough for us to uh, not murder a man but assassinate him with our tongue, for instance. It's not enough just not to commit adultery, but we lust after a woman in our heart. It's not enough simply to tell the truth. We're to love the truth. In other words, that our morality is to spring from the heart, not just from the actions of our body. It's more than skin deep. And further, he teaches us that towards our neighbor, we're not just to do what's right, what's legal. We're to do good. We're to go over and above and beyond what might be expected. And in that section where he talks about loving our enemies and going the second mile and turning the cheek, we're not only to just do right, we're to do good. Now that's on the horizontal level. In chapter 6, in the section we just finished, he deals with the vertical relationship. That is, our duty not only extends towards our fellow man, but it also extends in the direction of God. If we are, in fact, in the kingdom of heaven, we are now alive to God. We stand in a relationship to God, and certain duties then accrue to us. And yes, those duties, sometimes we refer to them as being religious. I hate the term, too. I know some of you just sort of cringe, because I don't want to be a... You know, somebody comes up and says, well, you're, you're just religious. It's spoken in a, with a sneer, and it's sort of... You know, an insinuation that we're just here to put on a show and put on a front and act like we're something we're not, play the hypocrite. Well, as I said last Sunday, if you're here this morning and you're a hypocrite, I'm glad you're here. This is a good spot for you, for I don't know anywhere else you're going to hear something that would help you get away from being a hypocrite. Uh, the world's certainly not going to help you out there. It is the gospel and the gospel alone that will be a cure for your hypocrisy. But nevertheless, we are, as we see here in our text, or not our text, but the text from last Sunday, there are certain duties that are just presumed here, that we will give, when you give, Jesus says, not if you give, when you pray, when you fast. In other words, we think of those duties of godliness or piety, sometimes we call them that, our, our duties towards God. And yes, there will be those things. We will be in church on Sunday morning. That's what God's people do. We will give our money. We will pray. We'll study the Word. All of those things that tend to go along with being God's people. And yet, as we see in that portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's concern is that we are, in fact, not hypocrites. That we're not just putting on a show, standing in front of people so that people will say what wonderful, religious, good folks we are. Because we're supposed to do it, you know, it's just expected of good people that you go to church on Sunday morning, things like that. Neither are we to violate the the character of God in the way we perform our religious duties. For instance, Jesus speaks of the heathen with their much speaking, thinking they'll be heard. We're never to think that God somehow does not know what we need. And, you know, we're his Johnny on the spot. And if we don't tell him what we need, he won't know. No, he keeps reiterating, your father knows. Neither are we to think God is being impotent, that somehow we've got to pump him up. We've got, we, we must not think of him being unwilling, uncaring, unfeeling. You remember the sick stuff that those priests of Baal and prophets of Baal were doing, jumping up and down on their altar when Elijah was sort of aging them on, cutting themselves with knives and lances. What kind of God do you suppose they had that enjoyed his worshipers getting up on an altar and cutting themselves? What kind of God, for instance, would enjoy human sacrifice? Tells you something about the character of your God. And so Jesus is concerned that we do not somehow denigrate the character of the image of God in the way that we worship Him. And so we have just come through that section of the Word of God. This morning, however, as we pick up in verse 19, you'll notice now that Jesus, where He has talked about a relationship to people on the horizontal plane, towards God in the vertical plane, now He addresses our relationship to things. Things. Stuff, material stuff, things like what you eat, what you wear, 
uh, things that we call the necessities of life. In other words, if you're going to live in the world, then you've got to eat. You've got to have something to drink. got to have something to wear. got to have a place to live. We recognize those as necessities of life. Jesus will now instruct us as to what our attitude should be towards things. First of all, it might appear at first glance that Jesus is in fact teaching us not to work, not to labor, to just trust God. Do you understand how some people could actually get that from this passage? I mean, let's just notice here in verse 26 where he speaks of the fowls of the air, the birds. He says, what, do, what about them? They sow not, neither do they reap. They don't get out and plant the crop in the spring. They don't reap it in the fall. They just go out and live off the land. In verse 28, notice what he said about the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin uh, talking about the fact that they're clothed, and yet they don't do the spinning, and yet they're clothed. Do, do you understand how, at first glance, you could say, "Well, what he's teaching us is then just sort of, you know, just sort of kick back and let God take care of your needs." I had a phone call in the middle of the night one day or evening in Evanston, Wyoming, from some man back here in this part of the world. I have no idea. Somebody calls and talks to me after midnight. It's actually a wasted effort. You will get a conversation, all right, but. When it's all said and done, the next morning comes, Linda will ask me, who was that and what were you talking about? I have no idea. No idea. It'll, I'll sound lucid to you, but trust me, after midnight, forget it. It doesn't compute. Well, this guy calls me up in the middle of the night, and uh, he has come from back east somewhere. Somebody gave him my name, and I said, well, what are you here for? He was in town up at the bus station, and he said, well, I've come down here. I want to go down into the mountains and build me a cabin, and I'm just going to live down there on the land. It's hard to explain to somebody back here that you don't go out to Wyoming in the wintertime and go up in the mountains and build you a cabin. I mean, Bonnie and Sam, y'all know what I'm talking about. I mean, how idiotic. The Indians didn't even do that. The Indians had enough sense to migrate out of that country in the wintertime. They went to Arizona. The moose, the elk don't even stay up there in the wintertime. You freeze to death. The mountain men didn't even stay in the mountains in the wintertime. So I'm trying to explain to this guy that you can't just go down to the mountains and build you a cabin and live off the land. You'll be dead in a week. We'll find you frozen up there in the spring. But this was the idea. He had become a Christian and somebody had put in his head the notion of living by faith, trusting God is to simply quit your job, move up to the mountains and build you a cabin and live off the land. Well, let me say first of all that other passages in the New Testament clearly clearly show that this is not the intent of our Lord here. I think of what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, that they who would not work should not eat. That sounds rather harsh, doesn't it? But yet this is the Apostle Paul saying that if they won't work, some indeed in Thessalonica had done exactly that. They refused to work at all. They'd become lazy bums, busy bodies he calls them. And he says, if that's the way they want to live, then let them not eat. Or I think, for instance, of Paul writing to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. Let's turn over there and look at that passage just a moment. He says, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house. In other words, we have a responsibility to do good. Goo goo. I'm getting it right here in a minute. We have a responsibility to do good to all and help. Help all men, but notice in verse 8, especially for those of his own house. And if he doesn't, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Worse than a heathen if he refuses to provide for the needs of his own family. So I just point this out, what should be obvious is that obviously Jesus here is not teaching us that in order to live by faith, we quit our jobs, we cast off all responsibility and just go out there and Roam around like the birds, picking up our seed off the ground. In other words, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is not calling us to irresponsibility. He is calling us to have our sense of priority straight. To get things in order. Notice that a lost man typically finds life 
I'm going to put a quotation mark around life. Because I mean more than just his physical existence. I mean that which makes life worth living. Lost man finds life. And I mean by that then his sense of self-worth, his sense of self-esteem, his sense of well-being, his sense of security and his confidence, his peace. Lost man finds all of those things, life, in stuff. In things. It may be wealth. It may be how much money he's got in the bank. It may be in other kinds of possessions. How much land he owns. How many houses he owns. It may be in the number of degrees that he's got to his credit and education. It may be the number of titles, whether he's the CEO or whatever, or this or that. But he finds life, his security, his sense of well-being and self-esteem. He finds it in stuff. Or as Jesus would say, in the amount of things that he possesses. Now, I will be the first to tell you that these things, this stuff, does convey to us a measure of security, confidence. As they say, the old saying is, money won't buy happiness. But it sure makes misery a whole lot easier to live with. Uh, right? I mean, let us not deny that there... In other words, all I'm saying is, there is a peace that the world gives. There is a sense of peace. There's a sense of security and well-being. Now, it's false. It's fake. It's phony, as we will see. But it certainly soothes and salves the mind of man. He's got a big bank account. He's got a lot of possessions. He's got a lot of titles, self-respect you know, respect in the community. All of those things go together to give a man a sense of ease and peace. Let me give an example. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. And if you read on after what I'm going to read you, you'll see that this is indeed in the same context that we're speaking. But in Luke chapter 12, verse 16, says that he, Jesus, spoke a parable unto them, saying... The ground, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no place or room to bestow my, my fruits or my crops. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink. And be merry. Now I just want you to notice that there was a sense of peace, a sense of security and confidence that this man has, and he has it because of his barns packed to the gills, I guess we would say, filled to the gills with stuff. There is a peace that the world gives. Now, it's fake, it's false, it's not lasting, because notice in the next verse, verse 20, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? He actually was a few breaths away from eternity. It was a peace, peace, when there really was no peace. It was a security, but it was a false sense of security, but we would not deny that the world does offer that, and that's what most men are seeking for, that sense of peace, that sense of well-being. In other words, you ask yourself, what is it that makes people tick? What are they pursuing in this life? What are they after? Well, that's what they're after. Not everybody wants to be a Bill Gates and earn the billions. They just want enough to feel satisfied, secure, comfortable. Peace. That's what they're looking for. Now Jesus teaches here about that and says basically two things. First of all, he tells us not to be short-sighted and to ignore the long run. If you'll notice in Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20, the contrast between earth, the treasures on earth, and verse 20, the treasures in heaven. Scriptures often speak of our life, first of all, occurring here on earth, this realm, this sphere of things, and then a life to come that may be heaven or hell, eternity. 
But notice that we have that contrast exhibited. Man's body and his soul will neither be advantaged ultimately by what he has in this life. Let me say that again. Man's, neither his body nor his soul, will be ultimately advantaged by what he gains in this life. Let me try to give an illustration. Suppose you were on a vacation. And every time you stopped for gas, you went out behind the filling station with a shovel and you dug you a little hole and you threw some money in the ground and covered it back up and then got in the car. And after a while, I'm sure if your wife's like my wife, she'd be saying, what in the world do you think you're doing? And you say, well, wait, I'm, I'm just burying this in the ground, you know, so I'll have it when I need it. And she might be right in pointing out to me, but we're on vacation. We'll probably never be back here again. What are you doing putting your treasures, as it were, in the ground of a place where you're not going to be? And that is precisely Christ's point here. Here the man who built the barns and the bigger barns, he amassed himself a treasure, but the treasure was located in a place where he wasn't going to be. We're just passing through this life, you understand. We're strangers and pilgrims. We're not permanent residents. And if we sink our treasures in this life, what we're doing is putting them in a place where we're ultimately not going to be. Do you understand that that principle? I think that's fairly straightforward. Jesus gave a very mysterious parable in the New Testament. Um, It is called the parable of the unjust steward. And if you're like me, you've probably scratched your head over that parable at times as I have done. It is quite mysterious. Basically, the guy's a crook. He's a steward. He's he's the bookkeeper for a rich man. And uh, he's been swindling some money from him. And the fellow finds out about it and going to put him out of his job. He's going to make a final accounting and kick him out on his ear. So before he does, this bookkeeper goes to all his master's debtors and knocks down their bill a little bit. So that when he gets kicked out of his job, these guys will receive him. They'll, they'll accept it. He made friends, you see, of his master's debtors by being unfaithful to his master. That's a strange parable because this guy's just a crook. And yet Jesus holds him up before us and says, this is wisdom here. This is an example of wisdom. Now, I think what our Lord is doing in that parable is he's not pointing out the man's morality, obviously. But he is pointing out the fact that the man was far-sighted. His present situation was going to come to an end. The situation he was in at the moment was not going to last forever. There was coming a day when he was going to be put out of that circumstance. And wisdom would tell you to prepare for that day. We have a lot of such wisdom Going around today in financial seminars and so forth, teaching you to prepare for retirement, prepare for this or that. Well, indeed, that's wisdom on the earthly realm. But my friend, retirement is not going to be here in this life. Retirement is going to be in eternity. There's where you'll retire, not here. All right, the second thing that Jesus teaches here. It's not only that we would be short-sighted as far as time is concerned, but also that we would not be nearsighted. And I mean by that, the man who is nearsighted can only see that which is close up. That's not my problem. I've got the opposite problem. But if you're nearsighted, you see that which is close up. You cannot see that which is far off. So Jesus would tell us not to be nearsighted, that we are never to find our security in these things that we can see. The things that we can touch, the tangible things, because those things will not last. Over and over, this lesson is impressed upon us in the New Testament. We have the idea that, boy, if you really want to be secure in your wealth, you know, buy you some gold. You know, whatever happens, that'll be stable and that'll be solid. My friend, the Bible teaches a time when the whole world will be purged with fire. Everything here removed, as it were. In other words, that's a short, nearsighted. If you can touch it, if you can have it in your hands, everything that you call yours, you will either leave it or lose it. Everything. You will leave it for somebody else or you'll lose it. 
The thief will break in and get it, or the moth will corrupt it, or the rust. You buy that brand spanking new car that cost you an arm and a leg. It's the most wonderful thing, and in a little while, it's a hunk of junk. The moth, the rust, corrupts. Do you understand what I'm saying? Wealth, stuff, it's an illusion. It appears to be something solid in its illusory. It's, it's man chasing a pipe dream. Or as the scripture would put it in Isaiah, chasing mirages. He thinks that over there, if he can just get this, then everything's going to be okay. And he gets there and it's gone. And the mirage is now over here. And so he starts running in that direction. And so we spend our life running from mirage to mirage saying, this is going to do it for me. This is going to make me happy. This is going to give me that sense of well-being and security and peace and happiness And no sooner do we get it than it's gone. Or even if you get your hands on it, which most of us are never going to do, you understand? I think we come to that realization about this stage of life that we're probably not going to be the next Bill Gates. Not going to own billions. But even if we did, we would have it. And as that man who built his barns learned just a short while later, and it was left for someone else, And it was no longer his. Everything that you have that you call yours, you will lose it or you will leave it. The old adage is, you never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You're not going to take it with you. It's transitory. It's not permanent. And so Jesus would teach us those two lessons. Neither be short-sighted, neither be nearsighted. Now the thing that Jesus is addressing here is not whether we actually need stuff, nor whether we should labor with our hands to try to obtain stuff. Both of those things I readily admit, the scripture readily admit, and Jesus admits. Your father, what does he say here? Your father in verse 32 knows that you have need of these things. You say, but I've got to have something to eat. Okay, your father knows that. I've got to have something to drink. Your father knows that. I've got to have something to wear. Your father knows that. There are certain things we call necessities of life, and you are not somehow informing God of something he doesn't know when you remind him of that fact. He knows. That's admitted. Yes, you do need these things. Rather, what Jesus is dealing with here is what we would call the attitude of our hearts towards these things. And I want to put a big thing in neon lights here, surprised. I mean, when he dealt with our relationship towards our fellow man, what was he really getting at? It's not enough just to make your body go through the motions. God demands our hearts be right towards my fellow man. And when he deals with our matter of worshiping God, it's not enough for me to just be here on Sunday morning and go through the motions. God demands that my heart be right in my worship. Is it then any great surprise that when we turn to this topic, my relationship with stuff, with things, that once again, God demands that my heart be right towards stuff, towards things. Now, first of all, God demands that he have the focus of our hearts. Uh, Kenny used that word a moment ago. He was talking about being focused on something. Uh, Madison, when you look at something through your telescope, you finally get it in focus. Um, we generally means that means I've got a sharp picture. I've got it crystal clear. It's in view. It's in my in my view. God demands that He be the focus of our hearts. That is, that first and foremost, our hearts are centered upon God. I could ask you, for instance, what did you do? Today, What have you done today? Now, right now you can give me a whole list of things, but tomorrow if I asked you, basically I said, what would you do yesterday? You'd say, well, I went to church. Well, actually you've done a lot of things today. You got up, some of you took a shower. Wished all of you did, but some of you did. Uh, Some of you took a shower, some of you brushed your hair, some of you brushed your teeth. But why tomorrow, when somebody asked you at work, what would you do yesterday? Why didn't you say, well, I got up and brushed my teeth. Why wouldn't you say that? Well, because brushing your teeth, that's one thing. So you get here today. 
Work with me on this a little bit. I realize it's a stretch, but you get, you get the picture here. Is that yes, we do lots of things. I, I've, I've done a lot of things this morning, but I did them all so that I could be here right now. I was focused on this as the end. This was what I'm about. This is what I'm doing. I had to do all those other things to get, to get here. In the same sense, our Lord would have God take priority over all else in our life. God's kingdom is to have the first place. Did you, the, the verse we sing a lot. Matthew 6 verse 33. But seek ye first. It's not that you don't need to seek these things. The problem is with the Gentiles in verse 32, they seek these things first. Lost man seeks this stuff first, and then if there's any time left over, God gets a little bit. A little money left over, God gets it. Anything left over, God can have, but I want this first. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven works this way. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You seek God and you seek conformity to God first. And then all these things will be added to you. This is just wind aggressive. This is just the leftovers. This is the little stuff. You know, we say don't sweat, don't sweat the small stuff. This is the small stuff. The big stuff to the Christian is his relationship with God. Is he right with God? All this other is to be viewed as small stuff. God's kingdom is to be our priority. It's to be our treasure. Did you notice that little statement back earlier that where your treasure is, there will be your heart also? We say sometimes I come to church and my heart's just not in it. You know what you're saying is that my treasure's not in this. My treasure is out there somewhere. What you treasure, there will your heart be. Whatever you treasure, and the Christian treasures God, His kingdom, His righteousness. First and foremost, all this other stuff, it's just what I have to do. I'm reminded, I believe it was William Carey, the shoe cobbler, was getting ready to go to India as a missionary, and they introduced him as a shoe cobbler. And he says, no, that's just what I have to do to be a missionary. <laughs> that's just what I have to do to pay the bills. I'm a missionary. That's my goal in life. That's what I'm about, is preaching the gospel. Cobbling shoes is just what I have to do to do that. That's how the Christian views his life. First priority is God. Oh, yes, he has to go to work on Monday morning, but I just do that so I can do the other. Back in Nashville, I came into that type of thought. Because you'd be sitting in the barber chair getting your hair cut by a guy, and you ask him, you know what? Oh, what do you do? You, you're a barber? And he says, no, no, I'm a songwriter. Well, if you're a songwriter, why aren't you home writing songs instead of cutting hair? Well, you know, uh, and, and people you meet on the street, well, they're a guy I knew in a warehouse who's a bass player. Worked in a warehouse during the day, played bass at night. But you ask him what he is, he's a musician. That's that musician temperament. You ask him what he is. What, what floats his boat? He's a musician. Now he has to cut hair. He has to work in the warehouse to make ends meet. But that's what consumes him. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Is that the kingdom of God consumes the Christian. That's what he's wrapped up in. Oh yes, he does these other things and he needs these other things. And these things are well and good and fine in their place, but not in his place. Alright, that's the first thing. Secondly, Christ demands that God not only be the focus of our hearts, but God be the ruler of our hearts. Or the one that we bow to and submit to. Notice in chapter 6 and verse 24, he speaks of the fact that you can't have two masters. Well, I guess you can. You can have two masters as long as they're in perfect agreement. If both of them always tell you to do exactly the same thing, you can have two masters, but sooner or later the day's going to come when one of them says do this and the other says do that. And then you're going to learn, no, it's impossible to have two masters. You're going, you may obey one or the other, but you can't obey them both if they're pointing you in opposite directions. Now Jesus points out in the last part of verse 24 that you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon being the heathen god of materialism, material things. The man who sees things as his security, as his comfort, as his savior. You think man doesn't see things 
as that which will save him? Oh yes, temporarily at least. The man who sees things as his Savior will necessarily bow the knee to those things. He will obey the things. Sooner or later, your love of things is going to come into conflict with your love of God. And one or the other are going to prevail. Do I need to point out to you the example of the rich young ruler who came to all appearances with a sincere heart wanting to know how he could have eternal life? Won't enter this kingdom. And Jesus says, go give away all you got. Come follow me. And he went away sorrowful for he had many possessions. Sooner or later, the time came, you're going to have to make a choice. Do I love Christ or do I love stuff? Which do I put first? Then thirdly, Christ also demands here that God be the security of our hearts. I think this is probably the most important thing I'll say to you this morning. Christ demands in His kingdom that God be the security of your heart. Notice the comparison between us and birds and flowers. You may not like being compared to a bird. I sort of think that's being flattering to the uh, to you. Uh, that's probably a nice comparison, actually. The birds probably take umbrage at this. But notice the fact that Jesus talks about, first of all, birds and the Father's care of the birds. They don't sow the crops. They don't reap the crops. But they just go and gather. In other words, God provides for the birds And he does so for the flowers. We're talking about raiment here that God provides for the flowers that do not prepare, make any preparation at all. They don't toil. They don't spin. They don't spin at the loom, creating themselves clothing. God clothes them. And then he asks the question, if God loves birds and flowers, does he not love you more? Birds which are, as we say, a dime a dozen. The blackbirds this time of year can come and cover your ground, so many of them. Flowers, wildflowers, is what he has allusion to here. Wildflowers that were just there and they looked pretty a day or so, and then people would reap them and burn them in the oven. So temporary, so small. If God provides for them, shall he not do so more for you? That's the question. Is our conception of God such that we believe He loves birds and flowers more than He loves men? That's the question. I want to tell you a story about a young son decided that life was somewhere out there. So he got some money from his daddy and he took off. One long before he lost it all. Broke. Wound up on a hog farm. Feeding pigs. You know the story I'm telling you, don't you? But do you get the part where he would have feigned, he would have eaten with the pigs? He would have. But they wouldn't let him. He joined himself to a citizen of that land. That's the world out there. There's Satan and his rule over it. He joined himself to a citizen of that land. And in the eyes of his master, the pigs were worth more than he. The master would see that the pigs were fed, but not that he was fed. You get the sense. You talk about cruel. Talk about wicked. Elevating pigs above people. Now you say, well that seems very strange. Surely we wouldn't ever see that happening. My friend, do you understand that in Israel that's exactly what the Jews were doing? The Pharisees in all their rituals were elevating animals over people. Jesus talked about loosing the woman, you know, that was bound. He said you'd loose your ox. You'd go out in the stable and let him out on the Sabbath day, but you won't loose her. You've got a sheep that falls in the pit. You'll allow a man to pull the Sheep out of the pit. You won't allow me to do good to fellow human beings. You'll elevate animals over people. You see, that's an indication of how uh, how wicked, how vile the world is. It elevates stuff 
above people. Will you ascribe that same wickedness to God? That he'd love a bird more than you. He'd love a flower. Are you not worth many sparrows? Says our Lord in another place. To deem God either ignorant of our needs or impotent to meet our needs or uncaring towards our condition is to absolutely deface His character and His person. The God who made you and I made us needy. You realize that? He didn't make us self-sufficient. God is the only being in the universe that ultimately needs nothing outside of himself. He's completely self-sufficient. You and I, on the other hand, every other created being is made needy. He made us that way. And God delights in meeting the needs of his people. He delights in it. It it is not a thing that Jesus would teach us that therefore don't ever go to God and ask for anything because, you know, he really doesn't like to part with his stuff. In fact, the whole tenor of the New Testament in the teaching of Jesus on prayer is to constantly go and lay our petitions before him. Not that he doesn't know, not that we're trying to inform him of what the deal is, but that he loves to respond. When when we cry to him in our need, he loves to respond. He loves to meet our need. He made us that way. Do you understand that when He sees us in sin, when He sees us in eternal ruin, He responds to our need. He sends His Son into this world to die in the place of His people to meet the need. It's His provision. He loves to provide. Now, now let me ask you a question. Do you suppose that God would meet the great big need, which, my friend, is not the fact you got a hurt toe this morning, or it's not the fact that you got a bill you can't pay, It's not the fact that you're going to have to eat, you know, taters and grits or whatever for lunch again today. Your greatest need is that which will damn you throughout eternity. Your alienation from God. The sin that you have committed in His sight and the justice that demands your death. And if God responded to the great need in sending His Son into the world to make provision for the sins of his people, do you suppose that he will now withhold the little stuff? Do you understand my logic? Was that not what Paul is asking in Romans 8? How shall he, who gave his son, how shall he then not with him also freely give us all things? If God will give us the big thing, the big need, then surely he will give the little. Surely he will provide the small stuff. That brings me to a question. How is it that we can say we're trusting Jesus, trusting God, and we can somehow believe Him for the great big thing, but we can't believe Him for the little bitty thing? Somebody explain that to me. Does that make a lot of sense? In other words, I have this huge problem, this huge need, And I find it no problem at all to believe that God will take care of that huge need. The need of my soul for forgiveness. The need for reconciliation, for propitiation. I can believe God just like that for the huge thing, but I can't trust Him to put that next plate of food on my table. I'm suspicious, my friend, that what we're really saying is we really don't understand the big problem. Uh, that if we can't trust him for the little thing, then I'm really suspicious that we don't trust him for the big one either. You see, it's the same God that promises both. The same word that promises both, isn't it? Can I trust one promise of my God implicitly without any reservations? I will bet my soul on this promise and then turn to this one and say, but I don't believe that one's going to work. Somebody explain that to me. If I truly trust God, won't I trust Him in all that He says? In all that He promises? Especially the little stuff of life? Just a question. But something to chew on. 
Never have enough time. Can I just point out that it appears to me that Jesus is simply telling us that we should keep the Sabbath. I'm not talking about a day, folks. But if I understand what the Sabbath truly was, it was teaching God's people their need to rest. To rest in divine provision and in divine providence. That I can rest. Or, to use the words I used earlier, I find security. I find my peace. I find my confidence in what God provides and in what God brings into my life. So I may not have a dime to my name, but my father just doesn't own a bank. He owns all the banks. I may not have a piece of gold to my name, but he owns the gold in every mine. I may not have one cow in my name, but he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I may not have one piece of land on this planet, but the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all His. It belongs to Him. Oh, S.M. Lockridge, the black preacher out in San Francisco, used to say, he says, the, the songs that the birds sing may not have uh, God's copyright on it, but it's His. <laughs> it's His song. He says, the meadows may not have His laundry mark on it, but it's His. It belongs to Him. How true. All that is in this earth is in the hands of my heavenly Father who loves me and cares for me. How dare I not trust Him? I'm to rest. To rest my soul in my God. And therein is where a lost man just can't bring himself. He he can't see it. It, It's nearsightedness. It's short-sightedness. It's seeing the short run, but not the far run. It's seeing that which is present, but not that which is promised in future. It's relying on the things that my eyes see and the witness of my eyes, and rather than relying on the witness of God and His Word and His promise, it's just a matter of trusting God. And by the way, doesn't this make believing in Jesus a little... Put a little bit different slant on that. We talk about, you know, just believe in Jesus. Well, here our Lord is talking. You know, it'd be, be easy to believe in Jesus if He never said anything. Never opened His mouth. You just look at Him and admire Him and say, just believe on Jesus. You see, faith has to have a word. It has to have a promise, a testimony. Or it's not really faith, it's presumption. And here our Lord is opening His mouth and He's speaking. Suddenly to believe in Jesus is not just believing on Him in the sense that, you know, He provides for our needs, the need of salvation. It's that, certainly. But to believe in Jesus also means that I believe what He says. I trust what He's saying. He's not just my Savior. He's not just my priest. He's my prophet. He's my teacher. He's my instructor. He's my king, my ruler. And to believe one, I must believe the other. So it comes down to this matter. Do I truly believe Jesus? I don't know your heart. God can see I can't. But I do know the need of every human heart is to come in faith, to trust God, to trust His provision in Jesus Christ, to rest their souls in Him. St. Augustine, about the year 400 A.D., put it like this. He says, God, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and we are restless until we rest in Thee. That's it. Let us pray. Father, may You open our hearts to Your Word. May we hear the words of the Master as they come to us through 2,000 years of history that tells us that where we have perceived God to be our enemy, to be against us, to be a being that is intent on destroying our life, wrecking our happiness, that while we have perceived our God to be like that all the while, He has been feeding us, 
providing for us, supplying our needs. In fact, the very breath that we will use to curse his name is the breath that he puts in our nostrils. All the while, we have had hard thoughts about God. He has been tenderly stretching forth his hands towards us with testimony after testimony of his goodness and bidding us to come and to be reconciled to him. Even that greatest need of all, Father, the need of salvation, that one thing that we would have thought would have put a uncrossable guff between us and Thee. Father, You undertook through sending Your Son into this world to bridge that guff, to be reconciled to man who had sinned against You. What we could not afford to pay, what we would not have done ourselves, Father, You and Your mercy and grace has done through Jesus our Lord. We see, Father, how You love to provide Delight to provide the needs of a needy people. May we honor you. May we glorify that worthy name by coming to you, admitting our need, admitting our impotence to meet it, admitting our demerit, admitting our fault. And may we lay hold upon your provision in Christ Jesus. May we find life in him. May we be submitted to He who is the rightful Lord and Master of our soul. And Lord, we who own His name, we who call ourselves by the name of Christians, may our faith grow day by day. May we not, Father, be proven unbelievers in the so-called small stuff. For Father, that casts questions upon our entire faith, our testimony towards You. May our faith be seen, our faith in our God be seen in every single area of our life. Especially in this one that is most visible to those round about us. May we be in that perpetual rest. That our security and our hope and our confidence and our joy comes from our God and not from this world and its stuff. And Lord, though this world conspire against us, though... Everything thinkable befall us, though it cost us our life, may we, as others have done before us, with joy embrace the cross, embrace the fire, embrace, Father, the tribulation and death that is brought upon us, that we might know that we cannot be overcome, that we, Father, are pilgrims traveling through this world And all the enemy can ultimately do is advance us to glory. May our hearts be in heaven, that our treasure is seen there and found in Jesus our Lord. Speak to us today. Meet our need in Christ Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.